Let's uh, open our Bibles. Luke chapter 12 is where we'll be. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 34. Kind of bouncing around up here. We'll give you a moment to get there and then we'll uh, read it, pray, and dive in. All right, it says this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. The heart is a tricky thing, Lord. Prone to wander, we feel it. God, you see the currents that run underneath, that run within. You see the ways we're drawn to lesser treasures. You see the ways we try to find security, identity, life, where no security, identity, life can be found. And you want to heal us. You want to make us stable. You want to set us free. Free from fear. Free from anxiety. Free from greed. Free from slavery to the stuff of this world. The approval of man. Self-righteous. Arrogance. But I pray that you would, in the moments that we have together here this morning, accomplish that. For your glory and our and our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I hesitated to abstract these three verses or so from the larger context that we've been looking at the uh, past couple of weeks now in Luke uh, 12, verses 13 to 31, and including these verses down to verse 34. Um, but for the sake of time, I thought, you know, better, and for the sake of focusing in, I thought I'll just keep us here in these three verses. But before we really dive into these, let me at least recall uh, briefly what we've seen to this point. Um, 
really what we've looked at, what Jesus, in, in the midst of this discussion he's having with his disciples and this crowd, uh, what he's talked about to this point are what we've uh, mentioned, the idea of avarice, verses 13 to 21, or greed, and then anxiety, verses 22 to 31. That's kind of what's come before. He talked about greed or avarice uh, in particular by uh, using that parable. The parable of the rich fool, the guy who uh, amasses more and more for himself, fills his barns, thinks he's got it made, kicks his feet up, and then God says, today is the day of your death. Your soul is required of you. And all this stuff, all the stuff you were living for, what's going to come of it? And God says, fool. You're rich in all the stuff of the world, but you're poor. The things that matter for all eternity. You're poor towards God. We saw that self-love leaves you utterly impoverished in the end. You may amass more and more for yourselves, but you will be empty when it's all said and done. And in verses 22 to 31, uh, it's as if Jesus kind of turns the coin over, as it were, and he comes at this idea of possessions and our pursuit of them from the other side. So the strange connection between verses 13, uh, or yeah, verses 13 to 21 and now verse 22 and 31 is this idea that the, the more we kind of pursue and give ourselves to the stuff of this world, the more we're kind of given over to greed and covetousness and whatnot. Ironically, strangely, the more anxious and burdened our existence will be. There's this strange thing we notice that as we pursue the world, the world's goods, as we pursue comforts here and approval from people here and stuff here, what it ultimately does, it festers into anxiety. And so in these verses, uh, Jesus was kind of calling us back to the Father's heart, back into the Father's world where he says, listen, you are taken care of, you are loved, you are watched, you are free. Let go of all this other stuff. Use it for the kingdom. Let your dad take care of your needs. That's kind of where we've been. And now verses 32 to 34, Jesus is kind of wrapping this discussion up. And uh, whenever Jesus opens his mouth, it's never just wrapping things up. He actually gives us a ton to look at here. I'm actually going to spend two weeks on it, believe it or not. Um, but here's what I have uh, for us then. i got three headings um, that we're going to kind of walk through these three verses with. Although, uh, we're really only going to get to the first two. The third one will be for um, uh, the next time uh, I preach, which I think is two weeks from now. Uh, really, actually, what I want to do uh, at that time is look at this idea of the treasure in heaven, reward in heaven. What does it look like to live for that? So often that's kind of an abstract idea. It doesn't have any teeth, doesn't have any traction, and therefore it doesn't affect our daily lives. I want to think about, what does that actually mean? Like, is Jesus going to give us, I don't know, what's going to happen? What, what does it mean to store up treasure in heaven, to uh, pursue reward even in heaven? So we'll spend a whole Sunday on that this uh, week, uh, we're going to run through the first two of these. So the headings for this morning, first, the comfort, 
And then second, the call. Next week, we'll be looking at what I would call the capacity. So first, the comfort here. Um, Going back a little bit, in verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, if you recall from last week, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. If you were here last week, if you recall, I mentioned that anxiety understood as excessive concern for the things of this world. Because it is not of faith, because it is going dark to God and bending inward with self-concern, because it, it essentially admits or claims that God is neither present nor concerned, nor able able to help me in the matters uh, at hand. Because it is all of those things, what I said last week is that at the bottom of it, anxiety is sin. That there is often a covetousness or an idolatry underneath our anxiety, that when we see our, our heart turning with it, burdened with it, Often, typically, what we uh, can know is that, man, something of the world is becoming too important to us. It's starting to become too big of a deal, what they're thinking, what my bank account is doing, uh, uh, what's going to, you know, what the boss is going to say about my project or whatever it may be. So there's some sense of covetousness, idolatry under there. The things of this world become too important and they kind of crowd out from our hearts and minds God. And beneath even this covetousness and idolatry, I said, is, is pride. I, I, I'll recall again with you First Peter 5, 6, and 7, because I think this made the case somewhat plainly for us. Where This is where Peter writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. And for me, if this is true, that Humility looks like casting my anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for me. He's got a mighty hand. He's able to take care of me. Well, then what we are saying when we hold our anxieties, when we nurse our anxieties, when we refuse to let them go, when we refuse to bring them to God and release whatever it is we're worried about, when we hold on to our anxieties, what we see then is that it, it's essentially saying, now God, I don't think your hand is mighty. I don't think you're able to help or willing to help. I don't think you're here. And what we actually then come to see is with our anxiety, as we kind of hold and let it, let it uh, nurse it a bit, uh, we are, rather than humbling ourselves under God, strange as it may seem, we're exalting ourselves over him. That's kind of the irony, because in the midst of anxiety, we feel weak, we feel small. And yet we're still kind of saying, nah, I think that I got this, God. I think it's up to me. Um, now, the reason why I recall this here with you, just wanted to review it for a moment, is because I wanted to say this, and I think this is where Jesus is going to go in our text. I, as I went home last week um, and kind of thought about this and, and, and was considering the stuff I said in the sermon and things, 
even before I preached, uh, I was rolling in bed, worried about that point. Talking about anxiety being sin. Um, and after the sermon, I came back and I was talking with my parents, talking with, you know, Megan, uh, talking with some of you. Come on, man, I sure hope. I, here's the reality. If you could put it this way, I was anxious about my definition of anxiety. And, and I was going, I, here's the reason why. I, I sure hope that, that, that those that are in the throes of anxiety understand my heart and what I think Jesus' heart is in this, and why I would say this, and what I mean by it, and uh, how careful I want to be with it. Because I know, I know some of us are in the middle of that. It's kind of this abiding, ongoing issue that we're just paralyzed. Or Anxiety is a, a constant companion. Even though you wish you could just kick it out of the house, it's there. The last thing that I wanted to do was heap on condemnation, more weight for you to deal with. Oh my gosh, now it's a sin. Now, now I'm anxious about my, you know. It's the last thing I wanted to do. Because I realized that uh, anxiety often emerges from some horrifying situations. It's not just like, oh, you know, I want, you know, that toy over there or that mansion on the hill. Not just, it's not just that that causes anxiety. Sometimes it's, it's people that have radically abused us, mocked us, hurt us, horrifying situations that we are in the midst of. And the last thing I want to do is downplay that, call you a sinner and say, stop it, fix it. Get right. No, that's not the sort of thing we see Jesus doing. That's not the sort of way that I would want to handle it. Jesus would come towards us in those moments, in the place of our anxiety, and he would, he would weep with us there. He would sit with us there. But the thing that I do see from the scriptures, and the thing I am trying to bring out is that He's not going to let us stay there. He's not content to let us sit in our anxiety. He wants to walk with us out of it towards the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So, yes, anxiety is uh, understandable, perhaps, and Jesus has compassion there, and he's going to meet you in it. And I want to be a church that weeps with those who weep. And I'm just, hey, pastor said anxiety is a sin. Repent! No, it's, it's, it's not all that God has for you, is what I'm trying to say. There's stuff going on there that's not right, and Jesus wants to meet us there and walk us out of it towards peace. Earthly circumstances, whether we're talking about poverty, persecution, illness, or whatever else, are not bigger than God. And, and that's kind of the point. Anxiety says, and when we let it settle in, anxiety says... I think it might be bigger than God. I don't know. God's bigger than most stuff, but not this. And so, what Jesus is going to say is, listen, anxiety is not a place for the children of God to kind of set up camp. It's not a home. It's not a place for us to kick back and get comfortable. Yes, we might pass through it. Yes, we might deal with it. But we're walking on. And Jesus is going to keep walking us on. Walking us forward towards the Father. 
In fact, if anxiety is allowed to settle in, if we nurse it into a kind of new norm for us, what you will find is that it festers into all manner of sin. All manner of other things. You, you will find that your anxiety uh, will fester into things like bitterness. It will fester into things like anger, addiction, self-coddling, wall-building, bridge-burning, lot-burying. Are you, are you following with me? Look, remember that guy in the, in the, the parable Jesus tells who buries the lots? What was it? I knew you were a hard master and I was scared to do anything. So there's some of us that have wonderful gifts, wonderful stuff that God wants to use, and yet there's just anxiety. And God's wanting to release us to use these things. God wanting, wanting to release us into the freedom of the children of God. And so he's not going to let us stay there. Calling it a sin, I'm not, I'm not, I hope you understand. What I mean is, God has so much more, and this is not, this is not where he wants us to camp out. Now, if anxiety is going dark to God, um, the things of this world kind of crowding out God from my heart and mind, then Jesus' mission is to move us in the exact opposite direction. If anxiety is going dark, me getting big, God getting small, no more room in my mind or heart for the things of God, Jesus is going to try to walk us out of that. His aim is to turn back on the lights. To open our eyes to see the universe over which God is ruling and reigning for yours and my good and for his glory. He's wanting us to walk into that world. In many ways, um, maybe you remember that old hymn. This is kind of what Jesus is after here. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. So there's a shift that Jesus wants to, to kind of work in this room here this morning. In your hearts, in my heart here this morning. Where there's lights on to all the stuff of the world and lights off to God. He's wanting to say, let's go lights on to God. And you want to know what happened? The things you were worrying about, the stuff that was consuming you before you walked in, will suddenly seem strangely dim, less important. Not such a big deal what they're thinking of me, whether I get that promotion, whatever it is. Because I have him and his care, his protection, his provision, his promise, his pledge to be here. Because I have a father, son, the Holy Spirit that got my back and they're going ahead of me. Gosh, you see that? That starts to crowd out the anxiety. There's no more room for it when we see him that way. So this is what Jesus is after in our lives. And I think this is what Jesus is doing with us here in verse 32 of our text. All of that was a lovely, classic, 30-minute Nick Weber introduction. No, I guess that was 18 minutes. You're all right. Uh, Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear, you could say, is anxiety's closest kin, right? 
It's, it's a cl- closest relative. Anxiety quickly gives way to what you might consider even more um, significant fear. And um, Jesus is here saying again, things like anxiety and fear have no place in the child of God's heart. Yes, given trials and circumstances, these things are understandable. No, Jesus says, believe it or not, they are not permissible. I have more for you than anxiety and fear, paralysis, laying in your bed, scared. I have more for you. That's kind of where he's going to go. We say, okay, understandable, but not permissible. Why, Jesus? Make your case, because my stuff right now seems horrible. I'm not seeing a way out. I'm scared for my life. I don't get what's going on. You say I should not be afraid, not be anxious about my life. Make your case. I say, okay. Reason number one. You have a good shepherd. First reason he brings to our attention is actually hinted at in what he calls us there. If you caught it, I, I love this verse. One of my most favorite in all of the scriptures. But he says, fear not what? Little flock. Now, I love that. It's unique. It's uh, perhaps surprising. It's a beautiful image that he's invoking there. It's a pastoral image. It, it, it brings up the ideas of, of sheep and shepherd. And here's why I think such an image is so powerful for us and why it's so encouraging for those of us who are in the midst of, 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 of terrifying situations, given over to fear. What's profoundly comforting about this image is this. It captures both the smallness we know we are, that we, we, we understand, we get it, the smallness of us, but then the bigness and the goodness of our God. So it kind of comes at the issue from both sides. First, little flock. What we're talking about now, that's not exactly a flattering image. I'm like a little sheep. I'm just this little thing that doesn't know where I'm going. I'm about to wander off a cliff. I'm tiny. I'm, I'm scared. If someone doesn't come and help me, it's over for me. And you want to know something? There's something wonderfully freeing in the moments of your fear, the moment of your anxiety, to admit that. Deep down, we know that. We know, gosh, I am, at the end of the day, ultimately powerless about to do anything about my shrinking bank account or the cancer diagnosis or the crumbling relationships. I mean, yes, I can kind of read a few books and try to get some, but at the end of the day, if things want to shift or change, I got no power over that. And we feel that. We feel the smallness of ourselves, however much we try to deny it. And this world will tell you what you need is better self-talk. What you need is to kind of work on that whole, don't you talk to yourself like that. You can do it. You tell yourself, you, you dream it, you can do it. We're raised on the Disney ideal, right? If you can just believe it, your dreams will come true. Or whatever that is. It's like, that was horrible. I don't know. Where's my daughter? She could probably sing it. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. 
That's kind of what the world has to give us. No, deny the smallness. Push that away. Don't give in to that. Come on. But no matter how much we try, we know. Man, I'm I'm weak. I'm scared. I'm I'm not all that great. I mean, my for goodness sake, things like the campfire or my sister lives in Alaska, if you watch the news. Her house was just like it was crazy. Everyone's okay, but it was insane. Things like that, you just go, gosh, no matter what you build, no matter what you do, what? It'll fall apart in a moment. That's how weak we are. Small we are. We feel it. And so our fears, if that's all that the world is, if that's all that we have in the universe is us trying to face the cold, dark, unknown, well, then, yeah, our fear and our anxiety, are they make sense. But then Jesus brings in the other side implied in this image. Little flock, yes, you're small. Yes, you're needy. Yes, you're weak. Implies also good, big shepherd. We know we need someone over us that sees beyond us. We don't know how we're going to get out. He does. We don't know where we're going. He does. We need someone, we need a shepherd to lead and guide and care. And when the road gets tough, even pick us up when our legs are wobbling. Carry us past the finish line. That's what we need. And what Jesus is saying is that's what we have in God. God himself is that shepherd for us. Now, the idea of sheep and shepherd harkens back to many Old Testament texts. Uh, I wanted to take you to a bunch of them, but I'll just take you to one of my favorites. It's Isaiah 40, 9 through 11. Let me read this to you. Isaiah writes this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, and I love this, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young And I wonder if you caught it. Both the strength of that image, the might of his arm, the shepherd's protection, sovereign, you know, care, and yet the tenderness, the intimacy. I mean, am I the only one who kind of blushes when I read bosom? You know, like, God, I don't know if I want to be in your bosom, but you know what I mean? I'm going to draw you close. I'm going to keep you right here. Yes, my arm is strong. Yes, I am sovereign. Yes, I'm bigger than you can imagine. But I'm also right here and you're in my arms. This world, it seems to me, is, is, is growing increasingly uh, suspicious of authority, right? Because it's been abused so often. Because who hasn't experienced someone in power over them abusing them for their own good? 
at their harm. Right? Who hasn't experienced this? We start to go, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want anyone over me. But then here's what we have. We have uh, someone who is over all authority, higher than uh, any authority that there ever could be, king of kings. And yet we see also that he comes in and he cares. He uses his strength to serve. That's what the shepherd does. And of course, really, this idea of the good shepherd is is what we have ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Stand before these disciples, right? He says, I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And what we have in Jesus is the one who is stronger than death itself. And yet softer, tender, compassionate. And any other king, any other Lord you'd ever know takes the servant's uh, towel and washes her feet when there's a little dirt in between the toes. <laughs> kind of a king is that? It's amazing. You have a good shepherd. Do not fear. Second reason that Jesus gives us here, you have a prodigal father. The verse goes on and Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus shifts the imagery from sheep and shepherd to children and father here. That's what makes this text so amazing. He brings together two of the most intimate, two of the most tender kind of images he could possibly give us. And he puts them in, packed into one verse. God is your shepherd. God is your father. You're a sheep to under his care. You're a child in his family. Then he talks to us about what our dad is like. And he says it's his good pleasure to give. Some of us think, think that God takes pleasure in withholding. Jesus would push on that. So no way, no way. it's his very nature to overflow. The things that you think might be bad, he's actually meaning for good. There is gift even in the midst of hardship. He's doing more than you can even realize. Now, as I read the latter part of that verse, I actually thought here of a book by um, Tim Keller that I have not read. Um, but simply the title alone uh, struck me, and I think it's worth our reflection. The title of his book is The Prodigal God. Now, it's a book, to my knowledge, that's largely just an exposition of uh, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you guys are probably familiar with it. Um, the word prodigal in the uh, dictionary means this, spending Money or resources freely and recklessly. And so typically we've referred to it as this parable, Luke 15, as the parable of the prodigal, spending recklessly, carelessly, son. Because if you recall, the son takes his inheritance early. He says, thanks a lot, dad. I'll see you later. Goes, travels, lives it up, spends on all manner of indulgence. Wastes it all. I say, oh yeah, that's the prodigal son. What a waste. But then Keller says, well, wait a minute. There's another prodigal in this parable. 
Yeah, sure, we could talk about how the son is spending and wasting. But what about the father? What about God? Think about this. Here's the son over here wasting it all, showing he is utterly irresponsible. Not deserving of anything. He comes back with his home with his tail tucked between his legs and goes, Dad, I'm so sorry. Please just call me a servant. And what does the dad do? Get in that, get in the doghouse, bro. You're, 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 you're dead to me. Or you're going to pay me back twofold because not only did you take my money, but you brought shame upon our household. None of that. So what does he do? He gives his son more. Kill the fatted calf. Let's get a ring. Let's throw a party. Put a robe on him. My son was dead, but now he's alive. Who's the prodigal in that parable? Who's more reckless? You could say, man, if the prodigal son was reckless, how much more? God, with his grace and his love, lavishing it upon people who don't deserve it. Sinners who don't deserve it. It's his good pleasure. It's his very nature to give. This is what Christmas is all about, right? Uh, It's not about, I mean, just quick spoiler alert, Christmas is not about Santa Claus. (laughs) It's not about whether you're on the the naughty or the nice list. And, you know, depending on which way things go for you uh, morally, you may end up with coal or you may end up with a toy train underneath the tree. That's not Christmas at all. Christmas is the prodigal God, the God who it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christmas is about the whole world is on the naughty list. The whole world is in rebellion. And yet it so pleased the father to to he so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for it, to give himself away to it. And that's the crazy thing we read in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It was his good pleasure to put our sin on the back of his son and make for him an offering for us. It brought the father pleasure to just give himself away to pour Wretched sinners like us. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's why we should not be surprised when we come to verse uh, 32 and we read that it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We have a prodigal father. We have a good shepherd. We have a prodigal father. He's not holding back. Not only is he able to help, he is willing. Might not be the time you want, the way you want, but it's going on right now for the children of God, Christ. So lights are coming on, I hope. That's Jesus' intent. Lights are coming on. You're seeing the the, the Father's world. You're seeing uh, the world over which God, your shepherd and dad, reigns and rules for his glory and your good. And fear not starts to make a lot more sense 
in that world. But there is more. There is more that Jesus has for us. Um, the Christian life is to be marked not only by the absence of fear, but also by the presence of freedom. True freedom, uh, freedom from slavery to the things of this world so that we can finally live for the things of God. Now we move from the comfort to uh, heading number two, what I would term the call. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I want you to, you know, be at peace and have a nice, happy life and do your thing, but just don't be scared. No, he says, I have a lot more for you even than that. He says, listen, just as the prodigal father lavished himself, his gifts upon you and his son, his grace upon you, just as you've received and received. Now I want you to go. I want you to be prodigal towards others. I want you to be crazy in the way that you give and the way that you live with your stuff towards others. Sell your possessions, verse 33, and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So the man in the parable back up in verses 16 to 20 of Luke 12, showed us the way of the fool. You want to be a fool? Here's how you do it. Live as if this world is all you got. Amass more and more for yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. This is it. You want to be a fool? Make it all about here and now. Get anxious, worried. Spend all your energy for it. And be poor towards God and the things of eternity forever. That was that parable. Now, we see the other side. We see the way of wisdom. And it's not what we would expect. We see the way of wisdom here. How a person becomes rich, not with regard to the world, but with regard to God. You don't amass things in love for yourself. You release things in love for your father and neighbor. It's not about storing up more in barns. It's about selling things so you can give. What the world would call wise, God calls foolish. What the world would call foolish, God calls wise. It's a crazy thing to be a Christian. I hope you're aware of that. I hope you're aware of that. Because you, you'll be unhappy in it until you go all in. It's crazy. I get it. But it's amazing. The freedom is profound. Now, for those of us who take God's word seriously, if we read verse 33 carefully, um, then we've got a lot of questions, I think, that we need to deal with uh, at this point. Um, the one that immediately presses to the forefront, of course, and this is really the one I'm going to try to tackle with the rest of our time here this morning, is this. Is Jesus, in verse 33 here, literally saying that we are to sell whatever we have and give to the needy? Is he saying that I better get my house up on the market? That I probably shouldn't have a savings account like I do, or the hobbies that I do. 
These things are keeping me from the kingdom. I'm not following him rightly. I need to sell all of this and give it to the poor. Is he literally saying that that is what we need to do as if, hey, the, 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 what's left for the children of God is to live in a van down by the river. Actually, even that wouldn't be right, right? You'd have to sell your van and just live by the river. <laughs> I actually watched that skit again last night when that came to my mind. That's funny. You might not know what I'm talking about. I miss Chris Farley. Um, is Jesus here literally saying that we are to sell whatever we have and give to the needy? Well, in short, yes and no. Let's take those one at a time. Yes, I think we need to let the full weight of these words land on us and settle in, however uncomfortable they initially make us. Jesus said it. Let's let it land on us. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. He's got good in mind for us. We'll look at this more next week. You're storing up treasure in heaven. It's not like he's saying, hey, this is lame for you. I'm so sorry. He's saying, invest in what will last. That's what he's saying. He's trying to get us to get our math right. We'll talk about more next time. But I don't think Jesus wants us to immediately look for loopholes. In fact, if we're immediately kind of ready to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to get out of this, it's probably already an indication of a problem that our hearts are too attached to stuff. You can't really mean... Let's sit there in this for a moment. Yes. Yes. On the side of yes, I think we first have to reckon with Jesus himself. I mean, we do know the one that we worship, right? What he did for us, right? It would seem to me that by all accounts, as I read the scriptures, Jesus quite literally fulfills what he is asking us to do here. This seems to be his life, selling all and giving it to the poor. That seems to be what his life is all about. Consider 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I read this verse for you a few weeks back. But it's especially relevant again here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That sounds like verse 33 to me. Or related to this is what he says in John 17, 5, near the end of his earthly ministry. He's uh, praying to the Father, and he says this, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The clear implication of his words there is that I had glory, and I gave it up so that I could come here and deal with these people. Now get me back where I want to go. Because I miss it. He trades riches for poverty, glory for shame, so that he can come and save poor, wretched sinners like us. Describing his life here on earth, Jesus himself puts it this way in Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Like everything else in creation seems to have a place, but not the one who created it. Because we kicked him out. What kind of love is that? And then, of course, you take it to its climax, he gives up even his own life on the cross. For sinners. We say, oh, well and good, but that's Jesus, not me. Not so fast. Here's where it now starts to get personal, because we got to remember that Jesus, when he is calling any disciple, the, the call on every disciple everywhere is Luke 9.23. If anyone, anyone would come after me, you want to be a disciple following Jesus, you want to be a Christian, this is entry-level discipleship stuff. You ready? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Follow me. In other words, my way of life is going to be yours. A disciple will be like his master. And I laid everything on the table for the sake of the poor and the needy, the broken. Even my life. Come follow me and do the same. could take you to countless other examples on this point, but perhaps one of the most poignant of all is that scene in Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus and his guys are in the temple complex together, it would seem, and we read this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. (gasps) Did you hear that? Here's what I want you to get. This woman puts in all that she had to live on, I mean, it's gone. She's the Father in Heaven taking care of her, every need. But it's gone. And Jesus says, guys, guys, get over here. Look at that. That's what it's all about. He commends her. Now, yes, this is church. Yes, we're reading our Bibles. Hopefully we have them open on our laps or on our iPhones or whatever it is. And we know that the the Jesus, the Christian, answers a lot of times. But if you're sitting there, if you're not there with Jesus, and he's not interpreting this situation for you, and you're just kind of hanging out, watching this go on, are you not kind of coming to the opposite conclusion? Like, ah, you know, well-intentioned that woman probably is, but very irresponsible. Not a good steward. Oh, she's one of the radicals. Look at that. She's, she, she must be charismatic or something. That's kind of foolish, honestly. Now she's going to burden everyone else around her. Not being responsible. But Jesus says, guys, he holds her out. He says, finally, someone who gets it. Unless you think this is a one-off 
Paul says virtually the same thing to the Corinthians when he's trying to encourage them to take part in giving to the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Not not coincidentally, this is the same chapter where he talks about Jesus being rich and becoming poor. He's using the logic of the cross to say that's what we ought to be like. But... This is what he says, verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. What does it mean to give more than you even have? Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Did you hear it? It's the exact same thing that was going on in the temple with that poor widow. Extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Beyond their means, giving to those in need. And Paul says, not fool, but oh my goodness, the wisdom, the grace upon these people. Don't you just want to join in, Corinthians, in this work that God is doing? He said, I don't know if I want to join in on that. But don't you see, if this is your father's world, if you have a good shepherd and a prodigal father and an opportunity to, to, to advance the kingdom and invest in eternity, storing up treasure where no moth, no thief can get at, don't you see the equation? It makes sense. And the breakdown for us often is that we don't believe it. We don't believe God's here. Like he's right here. You think that if you outgive your means, God's going to go, gosh darn it. Look at that guy being all generous. What did I tell him about? You know, I've got to come down there and teach him how to balance a checkbook. No. Isaiah says you give your life for the poor, then you pour it out. You want to know what your father's going to do? He's going to pour into you. You're going to be like a watered garden. Just keep flowing. Too scared to test them on it. So yes, there's something to it. But now, the part you've probably all been waiting for. <laughs> Unfortunately. No, not necessarily literally in every case. Balanced, holistic, biblical interpretation brings in not only the yes here, but also the no. On the side of the no, I I simply want to read to you a few words from a trustworthy commentator. Let me read these to you, and I'll, I'll kind of elaborate a bit on the examples he gives. The categorical nature of this command is at least mild hyperbole, for no human being can live without possessions. Like many Jewish Jewish teachers, Jesus was no stranger to hyperbole, and he employs it here to good effect. The import of verse 33 is not to define discipleship in terms of deprivation or asceticism, but to warn disciples of the confining and restricting nature of possessions, freedom from which 
ushers them into an unimaginably greater existence. Do you believe that to be free from your stuff is to usher you into an unimaginably greater existence? Be able to use it for so much more rather than amass it for yourself. He goes on that Luke does not understand Jesus' Jesus's teaching literally or in terms of absolute asceticism is evidenced by the fact that numerous people, we'll consider them here, in the gospel narrative possess capital or real estate, real estate without censure. He gives us four examples. I'll just look at the first three. Women with possessions, Luke 8, 3. I wonder if you remember these women. Let me read to you verses 1 through 3 of Luke 8. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others. Here it is. Who provided for them out of their means. So these were wealthy ladies who'd been touched by the kingdom of God and they used their wealth to support the ministry. They provided for the disciples and Jesus out of their means. Without censure, without Jesus looking at them going, hey, we're not supposed to have anything. You want to follow me? No. One example. Second example, Zacchaeus, Luke 19, verse 8, he says. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector who we are told was rich. And he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, this is verses 8 and 9, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So if you recall, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, was getting his money as kind of a felon. And Jesus shows up, welcomes him, loves him. And and, and then Zacchaeus, being touched by grace, says, I give Half of my stuff to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone, I'll give them four times back. And Jesus says, half of your stuff? Nuh-uh. You better sell all of it if you want to be mighty. No, he didn't say that. Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is here. He can give it all. Not wood and literal. Something's happening. Something's shifting. We'll get to that in a moment. Joseph of Arimathea, example number three, and that's the last one we'll look at. Verses twenty, or I'm sorry, chapter twenty-three of Luke, verses fifty to fifty-three is what this guy references. But Joseph was the guy who gave up his newly hewn tomb, if you recall, so that the body of Jesus could be laid in it. And um, Luke tells us that this Joseph was a good and righteous man and that he was looking for the kingdom of God. But Matthew tells us even more. Matthew tells us in uh, chapter 27, verse 57, that he was a rich man. And indeed, it makes sense because tombs were expensive in those days and he had just hewn this one out for himself. No doubt he was a rich man. Luke says not, man, what a covetous jerk. He was righteous. 
He was looking for the kingdom. He was living for what matters. So, what are we to make of this? How do we bring the yes and the no together? I actually think it's quite plain. The fundamental issue that Jesus is driving at back in verse 33 of our text is not so much, hear me now, whether a person has stuff or not. It's whether that person's stuff has them. You with me? The issue is not so much whether a person has stuff or not. It's whether that person's stuff has them. Or whether, in other words, that stuff has been laid on the table before God. Do with it whatever you want. My life is yours. The fundamental concern is that of the heart and its treasure. And you see that in the three examples this commentator gives us. These people have stuff, but in every case, it's all on the table. Their treasure is not in these things. Their supreme treasure is Christ. And so when there's opportunity for kingdom advance or when God, you know, lays this on their heart to do this or that, they're ready. It's, they hold it loosely. So running back through them, the, the, the women, they say, man, we love what's happening here. He has freed us from demons and healed us from sickness. And he, we, we love this idea of the kingdom of God coming. We want to support it. I mean, here's our stuff. Let's use it for that end, for the advance of this gospel. Or Zacchaeus. Gosh, I've lived like a felon. I've cheated and stolen. Now I just want to give my stuff away. I want the poor to know the grace of God. You welcomed me. You talked to me like a person. The rest of my countrymen hate my guts. What are you doing here in my house, fellowshipping with me? I want the world to know. I want the poor to know. And I want those that I cheated to know what grace can do. So I'm not just going to give them back what I owe. I'm going to give them fourfold. Because that's what grace does. See, see, just the heart's not attached anymore. It's released. Same thing with Joseph of Arimathea. Gosh, I... Yeah, I was preparing for my own death or whatever. I just hewn this thing out for myself. I thought it was going to be a nice resting place until, you know, the resurrection or whatever. But uh, I guess Jesus of Nazareth might be worthy of it. No doubt it would be an honor if my stuff could be used for the purpose of the kingdom. The king himself. You catching that? So the yes and the no are brought together because the yes means it's all on the table. All my stuff is there. Even my life is there. I have taken up my cross and I am following him. God, you just give the orders and I want to be a part of it. I'm ready. But the no is that no, it doesn't mean you can't own a home. No, it doesn't mean that you can't have a savings account. No, it doesn't mean uh, you know that you can't have fun hobbies that you enjoy on the weekends or things like that. We're not going that far. He is saying beware of how your heart can start to attach to those things, find security, identity there. Moth, thief, rust, they'll get there. Beware of that. But he is not saying, hey, get rid of it all. It's all sin. No, he's saying, let's redeem this. Let's use it. So 
Take your home, for example, if you own one. I've conceded the fact that I probably won't ever own a home here. But if you have a home, it's not just about you and your comforts. It's not just about creating the space that you just get to come and thrive and kind of block out the cares of the world. No, it's, it, it's something that you use for the kingdom. Bring people in, the broken, the outcast, invite them to your table. Let it be a place of fellowship, a place of mission. And you know what? Let it be on the table so that if God says, get up and go, and you go, man, I did all the decorating, and I, we finally did the remodel. You say, all right. Sure, it's not mine anyways, and this place isn't my home. You are my supreme treasure, therefore I marshal every other earthly treasure for the advance of your name in this world. That's what I think he's saying. Let me just close then by reading uh, an exhortation that actually the author of Hebrews really closes his book with. This is Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 16. Hear it as I read. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Priestly language. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were what? Lambs, goats, sheep. New Testament priesthood, children of God, I know what sacrifices are in this temple. Giving your stuff to the poor and the needy and the broken. Sharing what you have. So we can share our stuff to show the world our Savior. Let's pray. God, let our hearts grip loosen. I pray we can only hold on to one thing ultimately. You say either we're going to go be friends with the world, treasure is here, or we can be friends with you and settle our hearts treasure there. God, I pray lights are coming on in this room. I pray we're seeing you I pray we're seeing wisdom. You're crowding out worldly wisdom, worldly counsel, and the word of God is being given sway. Thank you for the grace of your word and spirit. Thank you for the grace of the crucified, resurrected Messiah who goes before us. From poverty and shame to riches and glory. It's in your name that we pray these things, Lord. Amen.